Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Job chapter 38. We looked at Job really in three sermons. I told you one, one preacher preached for 21 years in Job. I won't do that. I could probably. I'm not sure I could. I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if we have that kind of attention. I don't think I have that kind of attention span, but there's so much we could do with Job. But three sermons were just kind of a flyover, but looking at God's providence. And so today we looked at the first week at uh, Job himself and how Job suffered and how he uh, was a good man who went through terrible things. And so we asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? A question that really we've asked today, but a question the text asked. And of course, last week, we look at our, the, the enemy of our souls, Satan. And so today we look at God, really the three major actors as I see it in Job. And so looking at the, cha- at, uh, the last, uh, the final five chapters of Job, and we're going to read all of it. We're going to read sections of it as we walk through. But this morning, Job chapter 38, uh, verses 1 to 3. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear another word of the Lord. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God's talking to Job. Don't miss this. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. and You make it known to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I pray that this great text would confront us with our arrogance and our pride and our presumptuousness. You would work humility in us just as you sought to work humility in Job. Lord, we would know that you do not owe us anything. We'd leave here knowing that you don't owe us any explanation as to your ways. But your ways are higher than our ways. And God, give us grace to worship you as Job did in the midst of turmoil, not in spite of the turmoil, but out of the turmoil. God, give us grace to trust you more as we are confronted by the text in the same way Job was confronted. Oh God, work in us. And if there be one here today who doesn't know you, I pray they be confronted by God, the living God, and come to know you as Lord and Savior. As you begin to work in them, we pray this all in the strong name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We come to the end of Job, and I want us to get a phrase in our minds that really, if I have sought the last 25 years to build my ministry on one thing, it's this. I got this from somebody else. Almost nothing is original with me. Of course, you know that, right? Uh, but it's a phrase that I encountered years ago by, from John Calvin, the great reformer. And it's really shaped the way I think about the Christian life and also my preaching and teaching. And really the task at hand is this. You've heard it before. So you might write this down somewhere and memorize it. Genuine wisdom consists almost entirely of knowledge of God knowledge of self. I'll say it again. Genuine wisdom, we want genuine wisdom, right? We have genuine wisdom and it consists almost entirely, he says, and I think this is biblical, that's so why I'm saying it for Calvin for a minute. We love him or hate him, but there's lots of things to love and lots of things to hate. But genuine wisdom consists entire, almost entirely in knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And I begin there because I think this, these five chapters in Job really summarize that well. Because I've titled the sermon, God is God and you are not. Why? Because we love ourselves and we love, we want to be our own gods in everything. If you've raised children or you're raising children, or if you were a child and you were a child, you know this, don't you? We want to be our own gods. We want liberty. We want freedom. We want the right to choose, but we want to have a God who does. So we come to these last five powerful, powerful, powerful chapters in Job, and we set the context. We looked at the first two chapters. There's been a lot of text in between, but really summarize it this way. Really from from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 31, verse 4, into, into chapter 31, there's a back and forth between Job and his friends. His friends basically telling him over and over and over, Job, you've you are reaping what you have sown. You are sinning in secret and God is paying you back. God is giving you his justice. 
And Job arguing that, well, can I find justice? Can I put God in the dock? How will God appear before me? Job complaining at times, seeming to doubt the goodness of God at times. And so that's all those chapters. And then a young man named Elihu appears, and he schools Job in sound doctrine and talks about Job's, uh, God's word, his perfect justice, and the, and the point. What is the point of fearing God? Well, here's the point of fearing God. He gives him that, and that brings us up to chapter 38. Now, a little short summary, but there's a lot of stuff packed in there, but that's, that's really what it's about. So we come, and we've not heard from God, and now we're going to hear from God. And every Sunday, you need to hear from God, right? This, that's why we're here. You don't really come to hear from me necessarily or, or Doug or Clay or your, your, your teacher. You come to hear from God, right? And that's why we preach and teach His Word. And so God shows up. God speaks and answers Job out of the whirlwind. Now, He doesn't mention Job's suffering. He doesn't give Job the reason for it. He does not answer the question that we all have and Job had. Why? Notice he doesn't give him the answer for the question, why? Let's read verse 3, or verse 4 rather, chapter 38. Let's read for a while. Now this is God speaking directly to Job. This is God speaking directly to us. Where were you, God says, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut the, in the sea with doors? When it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said to the sea, thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Right here, God said. Have you done this, Job? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and called the dawn to know its place? Have you said the sunrise is going to come up? Have you done that, Job? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal. And its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? Or have you seen the gates of, the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Come on, Job. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the path to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great, Job. You're as old as I am, Job, aren't you? Wait a minute. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? To satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass as the rain of father? Or who has begotten the, the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazeroth in their season, and can, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that, you may, that they may go and say, here we are? Put wisdom in the inward parts or give an understanding to the mind. Have you done this, Job? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions? 
When they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket, who provides for the raven its prey? When its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for the lack of food, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered to, of their young, their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. We'll come back to this, but you get the drift. God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. And Job's going to have to rest his case. Job's looking for vindication and God will not vindicate him. Why? God owes him no vindication. Why? I'm not going to tell you. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, God says. Who is it? And he says, I love it. Dress like a man for action. He's saying, man up. And I'll question you and you make it known. Uh, literally, gird the loins, uh, gird your loins and man up. We'd say that. You need to man up, Job. And you listen to me. You've been talking? Now you just be quiet and I'm going to talk. You said this to your kids? <laughs> you will. No, you're going to listen. I'm going to talk. I am God, he says. Fathers and mothers, we're not God, are we? But God says, you're going to listen. You man up. I'll question you. Gird your loins for action. Genuine ex wisdom exists entirely in knowledge of God and knowledge of self. All right, Job, I want to tell you about me. You've been talking? Let me talk. Here we go. You see some of the highlights here in verses 4 and 5. Where were you and I laid the foundation of the earth? Were you here? Did you lay the foundation of which the earth is built, the ground on which you stand? Did you do it? Come on, Job, tell me. Tell me, did you determine its measurements? Surely you know. I don't think God's being sarcastic. He's asking Job, are you the creator? And we have to ask ourselves that when we want to slap leather with God, and we do all the time, if we're honest, don't we, when things don't go the way we want them to go? The creator? You ever ask your kids this? Have you ever raised children? <laughs> I, love to raise, I love to ask that, you know. Some of you have little children saying, well, I'll never ask that. Yes, you will. <laughs> but God's saying, did you create this? Did you make this, Job? And Job's, we're going to see. See, what about, what about your sovereignty, Job? Are you sovereign? That's what he's asking. Are you ruling over these things? Why does he ask this? Why does he ask this set of questions? Well, here's why I think he asks this set of questions. He asks this set of questions because we crave sovereignty. And we know that if we're honest, don't we? Wasn't that the first sin of Eden? Has God really said? The devil said it. Eve said, no, I don't think he's really said. We want our word and our way. We want sovereignty. We crave sovereignty. Job wants to know why. Tell me, God, why? We want to put God in the dock because we crave sovereignty. We crave omniscience and omnipotence. We do. I mean, if you could know all things, would you like to know all things? I'd love to know all things. Man, I love knowledge. I love to know stuff. I know you. A lot of you love to know stuff. Man, I'd love to have omniscience, wouldn't you? I can have one divine gift. I think that would be what it was. Maybe more than all powerful, right? I'd like to know everything. And he's saying, you don't know, Job. You don't know nothing. Job, and he talks about verse 17, chapter 38, death and the afterlife. You know about that, Job? Are you the one? Do you know, have you, have you gone down into the grave? Do you know about death and the afterlife? We talked about that a little bit this morning in Sunday school. Mystery, the mystery of death, right? We know it's in the world because of the fall. We were Christians, but do we know what happens? We don't, do we? Did, did we, do we, have we solved those mysteries? Have you solved it, Job? The eternity, do you know, Job? No. What about the mountain goats? That seems more simple, okay? Let's come back to the mountain goats. How they give birth? You know how that works, Job? No. No. I love verse 13, chapter 39. The ostrich. Ostriches are ridiculous. One time I worked in the newspaper business. I was, I was working on putting out the paper on a Tuesday night. I was standing by the window of my office and an ostrich ran by. That'll get your attention. Got my attention. 
I thought, there's a story somewhere. I need to send a reporter. So I'll send a reporter to chase this ostrich around town to find out what was going to happen to this ostrich. And I don't remember what happened, but man, an ostrich, it got my attention. He uses the ostrich because it's so ridiculous, isn't it? He says, he says, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions and the plumage of love? No. Sure, she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed in the ground. She, forgetting that a foot may crush them, she lays her eggs and she doesn't care about her young. She doesn't care. And that the wild beast may trample them. And then she deals cruelly with their young as if they were not her. Sometimes she eats them. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. She doesn't fear God. She, she eats her young sometimes and she does, leaves them alone and she has no fear. Can you explain that to me, Job? Can you explain to me? Well, I can tell you why she does that. Because God has made her forget wisdom. She isn't wise. She's a fool. God, God has made her forget. And of course, how much more foolish man, right? If an ostrich, well, how much more when you put me in the dock, Job? When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. She, she's very fast. Can you explain all these mysteries, Job? What about the, the weather and the constellations back in 38? The, the Pleiades. What about that? Orion the hunter. We love to look. Joe, uh, Jake and I go on a walk for our dog every night. We always talk about the constellations. My favorite part of college was learning the constellations in astronomy class. Can you explain how those stars got in those patterns, Job? Who made the constellations? Well, I did. Orion the hunter. The Pleiades, the, the seven sisters, so to speak. A little glob of, of stars. As you can see, if you look to the left or the right of them, you'll see them on a clear night. What about the war horse in 39? 19 to 25. Think of the power. I go to the Kentucky Derby and those horses run by and man, they shake the earth, don't they? Horses are powerful beings. And think about a war horse. And he said, can you explain that? How they run to the battle? Think about the hawk and the eagle. I've always loved red-tailed hawks. That's my favorite bird. I love eagles, but red-tailed hawks grew up around those and always, they seem to be all over our farm. Watch them hunt. Can you explain that, Job, how they soar so majestically, how they, how they feed, how they find their food, how, because I give them food. Can you explain all that? No. I think a sub-point here is this, that, is that creation is intended to point us to God and His glory and not itself, not, not creation itself. I mean, God is literally, think about this, God is literally the environment that everyone on earth wakes up to every day. I'm not being a pantheist. He's not in creation. I don't mean to suggest that. He's made everything. We wake up to the glory of God every single day, every day. And though they're, they're the beauty of creation, it's not enough to save us. I mean, God knew that sin would divert the gaze of our eyes and the allegiance of our hearts, so he made his presence inescapably present in the created order, I think. It's not enough to save us, no, but it's enough to convict us and hold us accountable, right? I mean, the creation was never, ever intended to be the object of our worship, Intended to point us to its creator. It's got pointer glory. That's it. And that's his point here. It points to me. We should see the glory of God every single time we pick a flower. Who made the flower? Well, God did. Who did it? God did. Every time we boil an egg, how does that work? I don't know, but God's glory is in it, right? We know the one we know, but we really don't know. Glory is in that. Look out the window at a sunset or the sunrise, God's glory. Every time we pet our dog, we love our dog, man, and I just see God's glory in that silly dog, right? But he's God's glory. God made him that way. He chases after the FedEx man, and boy, our dog has a field day right now. <laughs> Why does he do that? Well, I don't know. God's glory apparently is in wanting to bite the FedEx man or the mailman. Our mailman and our dog have a very special relationship. <laughs> Every time we mash some potatoes, something mundane, God's glory is in that. God gave us these things, right? God is asking Job here, did you make these things? Did you order these things? Give order to them? I don't mean like order, order fries, but did you give order to them? No. Creation has only pointer glory, so we have to be careful not to worship it, don't we? I mean, it points to a glorious creator in the same way that a, a sign for Disney World points to the greater reality, much, something much in, more infinitely glorious, the amusement park itself, Right? You never stop and say, we've reached the sign in South Georgia and say, here we are, folks. Here are kids. Let's, you know, get out and let's unpack everything. No. It points to something far greater. And that's what creation does for us, isn't it? It points to something far greater, infinitely greater. 
We go to now to back to the text in chapter 40. Again, we're going to skip around a little bit here. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Talking to you, Job, fault finder. He who argues with God, let him answer it. You want to slap leather? Come on, Job, bring it on. You want to find fault with me? Let's go. And then Job speaks. Can you imagine this? What else would you say but what Job says here in chapter 40? He's, then Job answered the Lord, verse 3, and said, Behold, I am of small account. <laughs> and you want to talk about you know, something that's understated? Perhaps the greatest understatement in human history? I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. And that's all. That's all we're going to get from Job right there. Now, I don't blame him. He will be silent in the presence of God. Why? He has nothing to say. He has nothing to add to God. Just like we have nothing to add. When we come here and worship him on Sunday, no matter how fervently we do it, no matter how much our hearts are riveted on the text or on the, the text of, the, of the, the songs or the text of Scripture, we add nothing to him. We have nothing to say. Think about the first four words of the Bible. What are they? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That, that, right there, that puts us in our place, doesn't it? That's the first thing I, first Bible verse I taught our little ones. In the beginning, God, because I want them to know, put you in your place. In the beginning, God. Because that sets the agenda for everything in Scripture that follows. And really, it sets the agenda for all of history. In the beginning, God. Because as Job is relearning here, we didn't start things. We don't control things. The world doesn't function according to our plans. We don't know what's coming next. We wouldn't know who we are and what we're supposed to be doing if it were not for our Creator. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. That's why I keep harping on this. It's important. We will never be in the center of it all, yet we want to be in the center of it all. And it is the height of spiritual delusion to act as if we are the center of it all. And there are theologies, many of them, watch television, that put you in the center of it all. One very popular preacher with a winning smile put it, God has your picture on his refrigerator. That's the sum total of his theology, I think. I don't know if God has a refrigerator, and I don't know what the pictures would be on it. <laughs> Scripture doesn't tell me that. But we are limited. Every part of our creaturehood is defined by limits, and that's part of what God is driving at here with Job. And he asks about 60 to 65 questions here. This must have seemed like an eternity to Job. Because we have physical and mental and spiritual limits of every kind. And Job knows this. And he's reminded in the beginning God. And he stops talking. There's nothing to say in the presence of a holy, loving God. <clears throat> and then God speaks again. In chapter 40. He speaks out of the whirlwind. Similar formula. formula verse 7. Chapter 40, dress for action like a man. <clears throat> Excuse me. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Verse 14, he asked Job if he can subdue man's pride and man's wickedness. Can you do that? Can you make men... Humble? Can you subdue wickedness? And then in chapter or verse uh, 15 and 41, 1, we meet two of the most mysterious monsters, beasts in all the Bible. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. I'm tempted to. The kids would love it, but we're not going to do that. Behemoth and Leviathan. If behemoth is a real creature, and I think he is, probably hippopotamus. A lot of scholars think I think that's probably right, but maybe not. 
Leviathan might be a crocodile the way it sounds, but that, that's not the point, is it? Could be dinosaurs. There are some scholars who think it's, and it could well be. I don't know if that's the best argument in Scripture, in my opinion. We, I digress. We would digress because that's not the point, is it? We spend a lot of time on that. That's good, but, but not this morning. Here's the point. These are powerful beings, and yet to God, they are as gentle as a teddy bear. God can just take that crocodile, that saltwater crocodile, just put it on his lap and play with it like we would a kitten. Can you do that, Job? No, behemoth? Nope. Oh, that's it. Their power is like a teddy bear compared to my power. I control them. And then Job speaks again. Get to verse chapter 42. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Don't miss this. I had heard of you. But now... I see you. What's the result? Therefore, I despise myself and repent. Dust and ashes. Oh God, I had heard of you, but now I have have encountered you. I have, have seen you. What is Job's response? It's to be humbled. And that's the whole point at which I'm driving this morning. So we kind of burn through to this last point. Repent. We're we're to be humbled by this encounter Job has with God because Job is humbled. I mean, we've not done theology till we have lived it, till it's had an impact, it's landed on the ground in our lives. We've not done it. It doesn't matter. Big God theology, little God theology, doesn't matter till it's transforming us. Humility. That's what God is after, and that's what God is after. Really and truly, you could argue every single Sunday, this book humbles the pride of man rightly understood. Every one of us is prone to think we're at the center of our world and God says, no, you're not. I am. I am. And Job repents. And this is what happens when a sinful man encounters a holy God. A sinful human being encounters a holy God. This is what happens. That's why we come here every Sunday to encounter God. This is what we need. We need to be broken. We need to be humble before Him, this holy God. I mean, think about it in other places of Scripture. When Isaiah 6, God calls Isaiah and says, He calls Isaiah and He says, What? Man, I'm going to go. I'm the man for the job. It's going to be awesome. Give me, give me a bump. That's what Isaiah says. He says, no, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm among a people of unclean lips. I am undone. And until his, an angel, the angel of the Lord took a, with tongs and took a coal off the fire and purged his lips and made him holy, was he able to even stand and go? He was humbled. Because he's seen God in the, in the throne on his own high and lifted up in the, in the temple. The train of the robe filled the temple with glory. And he's humbled. But think about Peter in Luke 5, 8. Lord, he tells the Lord, what, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. John the Revelator had to be brought. John the Revelator passed out when he encountered God and had to be uh, something like a resurrection had to happen with him. This is what we take away from Job's encounter with God. Humility. Humility. What is humility? Well, there are lots of definitions, but it's really, I think it's God's assessment of us and Him. It goes back to us and Him. Think about Romans 12, 3, where Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. Humility is thinking of sober judgment about us because we've understood God. We understand our place in this world 
And of course, Christ and his, his ministry on earth and his death and resurrection, his humiliation, that defines humility. Think about the words, his humility and coming from heaven to earth, God becoming man, that is the very essence of humility, dying in our place, the just, dying for the unjust. And we need it. Because only, only God knows everything. Only God plans and controls everything. Only God has no limits to his wisdom, to his righteousness, to his strength. Only God is able to assure us that his will is always done. My will is not often done. <laughs> Again, you think about your kids. Do they always do what you say? If they do, come and see me. I want your secret sauce. <laughs> I might be a little afraid of your secret sauce if they, every time... Do you always get your will with them? That's just a simple thing, right? We all, I mean, my parents didn't get their will with me always, that's for sure. And my, my kids don't, I don't. God always gets what he wants. We're going to see this, we'll get Jonah next week. We, we run from God, that's who we are. We run, we flee, and God gets what he wants. Every single time. And God, only God has the right understanding to set the rules by which his creatures will live. Who said, God said, Ah, Job learns about things about God that we always need to keep before us so that we know God and ourselves accurately according to the Scriptures. I mean, the holiness of God. What does it do? It shows us how unholy we really are. The power of God shows us how weak we are. Oh, Job must have felt weak. I feel his weakness because I feel my weakness. And this encounter with God, I feel I didn't hang the Pleiades. I love to look at Orion the Hunter, but I can't explain how he got there other than God did it. The omniscience of God, we think, well, we've got degrees by our name, and boy, we've studied a lot of theology, read a lot of books. We crave omniscience. The omniscience of God shows how little we know or understand or how much we've studied how many degrees we have by our name. The sovereignty of God shows how little control we have. Did you determine the date of your birth? Did you? So I was born in February. Man, that's a cold month. I don't like February. I don't like February. You didn't determine that. What about your hometown? Did you, were you born exactly where you wanted to be? You weren't. What about your parents? Did you choose your parents? You said, man, I would never chosen my parents. <clears throat> I'm sure all of our kids have said that before, and we say that, right? Did you choose your parents? What about your eye color? Say, I want blue eyes. I got brown eyes. You didn't choose your eye color. God did. Take it up with him. Take it up with him. What about your skin color? We talk all the time about that. We're almost obsessed with that in this country. Did you determine that? No. No. What about the sound of your voice? If I could change one thing, it might be this. <clears throat> I'd love to have Adrian Rogers' preaching voice, right? Or Morton Lloyd-Jones, you know, I'd love to have that. Okay, maybe not the Welsh accent, but I, I just love that. I didn't determine that. North Georgia hillbilly, you know, you've got to put up with that every week. So you said, I'd change your voice too if I could. <laughs> right? What about your place you're going to die? Circumstances, you're, if you're going to make that decision, you're not. You're not. God does. Even the small things, as small as that, we didn't decide. Sovereignty of God shows we're not sovereign. The love of God exposes how unloving we are. We are our love is fickle. It's, a, it's conditional. God's love for his redeemed people, his elect, it's unconditional because we persevere all the way to the end. The faithfulness of God confronts our wandering hearts, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The grace of God reveals how critical and unforgiving we are. He's forgiven us this infinite debt of sin we could never pay. And we, we, we get a grudge against somebody in the church and we keep it for months and months and months and months over some trivial matter. The patience of God shows how irritable and impatient I am. His patience with me, it amazes me. And yet, I th how many times do we say, I find that person so annoying and yet God doesn't say that about us, does he? God exposes our sin. 
We could go on and on. I mean, what does the conclusion, what is the conclusion God wants from us? Humility. Humility. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You want to slap leather with God? Oh, just be proud. Just be proud. He'll come get, he'll come and get you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You want the gaze of God? Be humble, be contrite in spirit, and tremble at his word. You will capture the gaze in a good way of God. Humble, contrite in spirit, tremble at his word. Humility. Humility. I want to say this. Knowing God should never make us proud. Having a big God theology as we love and delight in should never make us proud. This is big God theology. And yet, for some reason, it tends to make us proud, doesn't it? God, I've come to know these doctrines, and boy, I just, you know, I know a lot. Never make us proud. And yet, I find myself even having to fight that. You know, these sublime truths and you know, maybe why wasn't I taught these when I was younger? Things like that. And no, 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 no. She make us humble. She make us humble. Always, always, always. Those who have a big God theology should have a big, humble heart to go with it. Finally, God speaks again. We come to the conclusion. We come to the end here. He severely scolds Job's friends. They have grievously misinterpreted God's ways and. 42, 7 to 9. He says, after the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, he, he addresses them, Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. Now he speaks to Eliphaz about the other two. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Job is indicated. Now, therefore, seven, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. Blood has to be shed for your sin. And my servant Job shall pray for you. He'll intercede for you. We have to have an intercessor. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer, upbraided his friends, and then Job is restored. His seven children, his seven sons, his three daughters, his ten children, they're given back. Seven sons, three daughters. And all of his things, this is an agrarian society, wealth is measured, the ancient Near East in terms of agriculture. He's given, he's given twice as much livestock as he had before. He's probably 70 years old here. He lives another 140 years. Job died an old man and full of days. A happy ending, isn't it? All this suffering, all this tragedy. We've, had, we've faced tragedy the last 48 hours in this state. Yeah, here's a happy ending. There's a flower growing here in winter. We don't find many happy endings today, do we, in movies. Try to find a, a non-Hallmark movie that has a happy ending. <laughs> Hard. We tend to be depressing. So I don't watch many movies nowadays. It's just really depressing. Job lives another 140 years. God blesses him. Now, my saying here is this saying, well, if you trust in the Lord, you'll have a happy ending. If you're in a trial, he'll restore your fortunes twice over. Is that what we're to draw from this? Well, no. I can't promise that. I can't. God's not giving me that authority. That's not what this is teaching. I mean, some people's lives end in darkness. Some marriages, sadly, they're irreconcilable. Some relationships with children seem to go from bad to worse, and they're never restored. Despite all the longings and prayers and urgings, they're never, ever, ever restored. That'll have to wait for glory. So we don't want to misuse this chapter. But it is saying this. Your situation can change 180 degrees by God's grace. Your suffering now 
It, may, it won't always be this way, and it may not, and it may be glorious in the future. I don't know if that's God's plan for you. But it's more than possible in the providence and power and sovereignty of God that this darkness can be taken away. The darkness you may be in right now, it can be taken away. It was here. Did Job ever forget the pain? Did he say, well, hallelujah, I've got everything back? No. I love what Derek Thomas said about this. If this were a movie, perhaps you'd have a shot of the ten graves in the background. Music playing. Ten children laughing, running, and playing in the, in the front, the nearest part of the scene. With those graves in the background. Sorrow was still there. The memory of it is still there, but it has been eclipsed for a season with joy. Springtime has come again. It can for you. It can for me. Maybe you think springtime is never possible again, that the sun will never, ever shine again. Read the book of Job. See how this man's life turned around in the goodness and providence of God and his kind and sweet benevolence. It's a marvelous ending. What does the New Testament say about Job? Very, very quickly. New Testament says this. Just a couple of things of application as we get to the end. James 5.11, and I want us to behold. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. That's persevere in trial. We have, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Think there of the stick to or the perseverance of Job. I like the perseverance better. Or the, we say in our home, the stick to You don't quit. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He was at the end of Job's life, right? He restored Job. What, what, what did Job learn? What do we learn? Well, from that, that passage, here, here's what we learn. And you know these things, but we need to be reminded of these things. One, it's God is sovereign no matter what my current life situation looks like. If I live in Mayfield, Kentucky, God is still sovereign through the tears. And there will be springtime in Mayfield again. But right now there's tears. God is sovereign over that situation. I mean, Job questions the love of God, but never the sovereignty of God. Why do things happen? Why are things the way they are? Because God has ordered them. That's what we know. And we focus on what we do know. I've had people ask me in church, why don't we focus on this and this and this, and why don't we do this? No, we focus on what we do know. We have a book full of what we do know. We will focus on that. There are other things we don't know. We know about the sovereignty, the sweet sovereignty of God. We will focus on that. Job understood this, that God causes or permits everything that happens, and so must we. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good. Those who love him are called according to his purpose. I mean, Job lost 10 children in one day. We read this with detachment. He lost that in his health all in, in just a few hours' time, everything. God causes all things to work together for good. Think of William Cooper, that great hymn, the English poet and hymn writer, contemporary of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace in the, the 19th century, 18th and 19th century in England. Battled mental illness almost his entire life, what we today would call bipolar disorder, probably. He wrote, God moves mysterious way and wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. The problem is we don't see his footsteps in the sea, do we? We don't see him in the saddle on the storm. We have to trust him. William Cooper goes on to write, Blind belief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is, is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. In due time, God will make it plain to you that he is sovereign and he is good. We've got to trust him because he, he moves in mysterious ways. And we will ne never ever fully explain it. We will never know why because God hasn't been pleased to tell us why. 
move. We must continue to trust God even when we don't understand Him, which is a lot of the time. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. I want to tell you something. We'll be personal here for just three seconds. I'm going to play some in my life right now where I'm a little bit perplexed about some things. I really don't understand. I'll admit it. I'll just tell you right now, as your, as your lead pastor, because I love you, I'm happy to share this. With you. I'm going to play some, I'm a little perplexed. Probably more than I've been in a long time. But Paul says we're not driven to despair. I'm not driven to despair because I trust God. Right? And I read this, and it's a perfect time for me to preach through this, by the way. I just read this and go, you're right. I submit to you. Even though I don't, tr- I don't understand. I mean, because look at Job. Think about it. Job took out his anger on God in a sense, but he never rejects God. He doesn't go to atheism. So many people say, well, I don't understand the problem of evil. Explain that to me, and I'll be a believer. No, you won't. God, if, if you're God, you won't go to atheism. In his darkest moments, he talks to who? Himself? God. He's still talking to God, right? He's still in speaking terms of God. He believes he's there and he's spoken. In his darkest hour, through his suffering, he had grown in his faith and dependence upon the Lord. He says, I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Faith had increased. I see God. I see him. Maybe not in the physical sense, he could, no one can see God in liberty, he sees with the eyes of faith, continues to trust him, even though I don't understand. And by the way, in my perplexity right now, I, I, I don't understand, but I trust him. Because I know, compared to him, I am the village idiot. And I don't know anything. Third, Redemptive affliction reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. He, rede- he, he helps us and grows our faith through affliction. I mean, Job learned that we ought not to be baffled by what God is doing. The end of the book here, it's clear. He's not surprised anymore. Yes, he was, but now he's not. If you're growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord, growing as a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised at this fiery trial that's come upon you. Peter says, as this, though something strange is happening to you, Job learned this. Job learned that he is a creature. God is God and he is not. You've got to learn that. Sometimes you want to be God. You crave his sovereignty. You crave his omniscience. And so too, I. He learned what Isaiah wrote. Job did. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways are your ways. Um, they're not. And yes, we're perplexed, but we're never driven to despair. I mean, Deuteronomy 29, the things God's revealed belong to us and our children forever, but the secret things belong to the Lord. There are secret things you will never understand. I will never understand. They belong to the Lord. We have to leave them right there to entrust them to him. That's why Jesus said you can't add one hour by worrying. One single hour to your life. You live like 700,000 hours, you can't add one. God's ways are not our ways. There are unfathomable things, as Cooper put it, hidden things. God does not owe us an alibi. Not at all. Job learned this. Luther talked about a God who is revealed, a God who, uh, who is revealed, and a God, a God who reveals, and a God who conceals. Job learned that. And Job didn't know anything about Satan. We learn very little about Satan in the Old Testament, right? The couple of times he's mentioned Job, and then a couple of other places we looked at that last week. It was not much. We know a lot more about him than Job did. He came in person to Job. I doubt Satan will ever fool with you or me. He'll just send one of his interns to come after me, right? And that's all I need is an intern. And an intern, one of Satan's interns, read Lewis's screw tape letters for more information on an intern that's maybe possibly true. <laughs> he's going to send an intern. Robinson, he's weak. I'm going to send an intern after him. Job slapped leather with Satan himself and didn't know much about him. We're told not only about him and his minions, his, his army and his privates and his, all his, his officers about how to fight him. We saw that, looked at it last week. Job didn't curse God to his face. Satan lost the wager. God kept Job. God can keep us, and that should encourage us. He will keep us. We lose a child or a parent to tragic circumstances, or we get a sudden diagnosis of stage four cancer. God can keep us. God can persevere, cause us to persevere. Fourth, we can survive seasons of affliction and even flourish in their aftermath. This had a happy ending. 
And your story will as well. Whether it's now or in glory, there will be a happy ending. It may not be now, but it will be in glory. We can survive seasons of affliction and even flourish in their aftermath. Not just survive and go, well, I'm gritting it out. I'm going to grit my teeth. But no, we can flourish in the end. Maybe it's spiritually. That should be enough for us. Finally, this is the right place to land. Sinful man needs a mediator before God. Job had nothing to say, did he? he? Except I repent. Because he needed a mediator and he was confident one would come. Remember Luke 22 we looked at last week, Peter? The Lord said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Comes to, Satan comes to God for permission to sift Peter as wheat. And he said, I'm going to give him permission. And I pray for you that your faith might not fail. And he prays for Peter clearly and Peter is restored. Peter denies God, Jesus three times, right? But then he's restored. Because Jesus is praying for him. He needed a mediator and he had one. I mean, Job trusts, Job 19, 25 and 26, he trusts that his Redeemer lives and will stand again upon the earth. Because he said, for I know, I know my Redeemer lives. And that one day, at last, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God for myself. Beloved, to know God the way he's revealed himself here in Job is to know God. To know yourself as fallen and weak and in need of a mediator, in need of a savior, that's to know you yourself. How they go together. That's why we preach the word. May it please God. Out of the, the, in the cauldron of our suffering, as we go through the fiery furnace of certain, of suffering, of affliction, of adversity, may it please God to enable us to know Him and know ourselves with much clearer accuracy and fleeting Him. Every day, let's pray. Father, there's so much in here and I have flown over it. God, I pray that you'd use it. Give us grace to come to you and put our hands over our mouths in worship. And in our hearts, may we say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And shall we receive good from the hand of God and not adversity? God, give us hearts that are utterly and completely riveted upon you, upon who you are, who we are, and all that that means. Your glory.